Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded podcast. I'm Matt Sainsbury, the Editor-in-Chief of DigitallyDownloaded.net, a new look, DigitallyDownloaded.net. If you go and have a look at our website, you'll find it's very pretty now, and it's nice to read for a change, which has been which has been amazing after seven years of the old design. We have a all-new, brand-spanking, new, sparkling website, and it looks great, if I do so say so myself. Anyway, that's a bit of self-promotion out of the way. I am the Editor-in-Chief of that their website, and with me this week... We have the regular contributor to the website, plus the magazine. He writes pretty much all the good articles that are worth reading. Harvard, hello, Harvard. Good morning. Wow, that's a real takedown of everyone else who's written for the magazine. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, that's all right. Nobody else listens to the podcast. So it's okay. <laughs> I haven't written for the magazine, so it's okay. I'm, I'm not jealous right now. <laughs> that's the other one who's here. Trent's here as well. He has not written for the magazine. I keep telling him to, but he never does. But uh, anyway, he is a uh, regular on the podcast, as you know, and he is here as well. Hello, Trent. Yes, I'm also new look as well. I climbed a mountain and realized I'm completely unfit. So new look by being unhealthy. Cool. That's interesting. You actually <laughs> climbed a mountain, did you, Trent? Yeah, there's like a local mountain path, which is like really steep paths. And normally I used to be able to do 40 there, 20 back. Uh, my time is not 40 there, 20 back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we all got a little bit unfit over this COVID thing. I went to the gym for the first time since the last round of lockdowns the other day and my body was killing me for days afterwards. But anyway... Um, this is not the fitness podcast. We probably should do a fitness podcast. That'd be pretty good. Fitness really? for gamers. People, people really are certainly paying attention. <laughs> people should be absolutely paying attention to that. But Wait, no. sports comes out this month. <laughs> oh, it does too. Yeah. Oh, it does too. Wow. Well, we'll be talking about that in just a moment. We're going to have a bit of music as we usually do when we start these things. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about the games of April.
And we are back. Okay, so let's talk about the games of April because there has been a lot of big releases. There is a lot of big releases coming, I guess, as usual. There's going to be an awful lot of stuff to play if you haven't managed to get through all that backlog that has already accumulated this year, then you're just going to be adding to it in April. But let's run through the interesting contents that are coming out. So we'll start with the PlayStation 5. Why not? So let's just scrolling through here. On April 1, we have MLB The Show 22. That is uh, Sony's baseball game. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best of the big base, uh, the big sports games. Uh, you know, you've got the Madden and the FIFA and the NBA and then the MLB one. I'm a big fan of baseball. So I always look forward to MLB The Show and it is coming out on April 1. If you're into your Lego games, if you're still playing those, then Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga comes out on April 5, and that will be a Lego game. I'm sure they're all pretty pretty much the same, but that's what people like about them, so I don't expect too much innovation. I just expect a game that people will enjoy. That comes out on, when was it again? April 5. Then we've got, I'm just scrolling through some, because there is an awful lot of not so interesting stuff coming out. Um, actually, that is it for the PlayStation 5. Wait, really? <laughs> uh, what? In terms of MLB the, and a Lego game. Yeah, in terms of the big releases, there's Chernobylite Enhanced Edition, which is uh, a game from the developers of Get Even. Now, Get Even was a pretty decent psychological first-person shooter thing on the PlayStation 4. So I, I guess that would be a game worth keeping an eye on, given that there doesn't seem to be too much else coming out on the PlayStation 5 in April. That one comes out on April 21. That's and very surprising. Yeah, I mean, other than that, we're talking about stuff like Gas Guzzler's Extreme, which does not sound like my game, kind of game at all, to be honest. But that is a action-paced, fast-paced racing game with insane combat features. So I guess Destruction Derby-like, that comes out on April 26. There's The Serpent Rogue, which is an action-adventure game set in a medieval fantasy world. No doubt it has some roguelike features, hence the title. So I guess that's there. That comes out on 26, April 26 as well. But yeah, it's otherwise seems to be a fairly quiet month for the old PlayStation 5. I guess everybody else will be playing Elden Ring. Over on the April's PlayStation... April's in February anyway. <laughs> I mean, the PlayStation, <laughs> the PlayStation 4 does have quite a few interesting games coming out as well. Um, so you'll be able to play those on your PlayStation 5, of course. We've got Orcs Must Die 3, Tipping the Scales. That's DLC for the tower defense action uh, RPG, Orcs Must Die 3, which is pretty, it was pretty decent. So I guess I'll give the DLC a go in lieu of anything else to do. That comes out on April 7. Also on April 7, you got Chrono Cross, the Radical Dreamers edition, which is yeah. a game I am looking forward to a great deal. Believe it or not, I have never played Chrono Cross. I've obviously played Chrono Trigger an awful lot, but I've never played Chrono Cross. So I'm actually I've going to... the same. Yeah. Lots of people haven't played it because it had somewhat of a bad reputation after it came out. Not like yeah. immediately after, but for a few years after people were like, oh, it's not worth it. 
Well, I mean, it was always going to have that after coming off coming off the back of Chrono Trigger, of course. <laughs> you just can't, yeah, yeah. You can't exactly um, live up to that title, and that's why Square Enix has never bothered to remake or try and do a sequel of Chrono Trigger. I would imagine there's just no way they can they can do it. But Chrono Cross, I think, has had a better reputation in the years since, and they're giving it a go anyway. Uh, and like I said, I get a chance to play it for the first time, so it's basically a new game for me. That comes out on April 7. Um, now, here's an interesting one. <laughs> For some reason on this Metacritic list, there is Winning Post 9 2022, which is listed for a release on April 14. Winning Post is Koitekmo's horse racing game. And it has a pretty good reputation in Japan, but they never localize them. But for some reason, this thing has an English Metacritic listing. Now, I actually asked the Koitekmo PR, what the hell is happening with this thing? And they had no idea. So it might just be a false listing, but the description of the thing is in English on here. So I don't know. It, it weirds me out that it's on this. It suggests that there is going to be an English port and just nobody's told the, the local PR about it. But yeah, it's... How niche would it be if it turns out to be a real English release? Like, is it like uh, um, Nobunaga's ambition kind of niche or more? Oh, or less? I mean, it's horse racing. So yeah, it's very niche. But there are certain markets around the world that do like their horse racing. And I think Australia would be one of those. So I think there would be something of an audience for it down here. Um, it is a very well-regarded simulation series. It's a pretty serious simulation, I think. But it is a well-regarded one. So I would certainly play it if it did actually happen and came out in English. And I'm hoping it does for that reason. Uh, I'm not Australians sure if this... will only play it if you can bet in the game. <laughs> well, I imagine you would be able to bet. Um, there are two, I can't remember which is which, but there are two versions of it. They do one which is focused on the horse racing itself, and then they do one which is about the breeding and the management side of horse racing as well. And I'm not sure which one winning post is meant to be, but either way, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by the potential here that we might finally get these in English. Moving on, we have Tasomachi Behind the Twilight. Don't know too much about this game, um, but it has an interesting, intriguing looking box art that comes straight out of Japan. And it has an interesting description here. Yukomo is a young girl traversing the world in her beloved airship. Airships is always a good sign for Japanese games. Upon arriving at a particular far eastern town to run some errands, her airship suddenly breaks down. She decides to explore the town to search for parts. However, the town has fallen silent with no trace of the people that live here. The only inhabitants left are a strange cat-like species. So, yeah, it's intriguing. It's an RPG. You'll, you'll be delving into dungeons and collecting items to fix your broken airship. And it looks like it has some nice art to it. So... Keep an eye on that one. That comes out on April 28. And that's it for the PlayStation 4. It is a very quiet month for PlayStation compared to everything else that has happened this year. That's, so PS5 has been out for more than a year now anyway, right? One and a half years or something. Yeah, it feels... Two years almost, isn't it? Yeah, We're it's not getting... getting the, the, the analytical articles going like, is the PS5 a failure, you know? But it feels like it would warrant that at this point. Well, it's not a failure because it does sell out as soon as it becomes available. The problem is that people cannot get the thing. Like if you still want a PlayStation, 
and you haven't got one yet, you still need to put your name down for pre-orders and hope you win the lottery when they do have new stock coming in. They just cannot get these things into people's hands. And for that yeah, reason... It's, it's making it that they can't make games just for the PS5 because they can't well, yeah, make exactly. people having one. So as a result of it, it does mean that the PlayStation 4 has a particularly long tail and the transition from one generation to the next has been very slow. Um, so you're right. You're totally right that that is all happening. It's just, it's not for the console being a failure. It's for the fact that they just cannot fulfill demand. And that is because they can't get the pieces <laughs> that they need to make the console and all of those kinds be of interesting things. to see how that affects the uh, console generation lifetime like if it gets to the point where it's like okay well we can't source these parts anymore do we just skip to the next generation like and like what's it's going to be interesting the next year or two right well yeah i mean that's a another topic for another podcast but yes it is it is changing how things are happening so who knows who knows um but moving on to the switch because the switch does have some different games coming out and it's uh, for a start, it does actually have MLB The Show coming for the first time. So even though that is a Sony property, it had to go multi-platform, one imagines, because the MLB was like, you can't you can't keep making this an exclusive to Sony to keep the license. So you're going to release it on everything. And Sony said, yeah, okay, we're going to do that. And as a result, we have a Sony game coming on the Switch. That happened oh, a Sony published game on the Switch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, well, Sony developed. It's an internal Sony team. It's not oh. even a... Yeah, yeah. Sony actually... Sony, the developer and company, has the MLB pro property. But like I said, I'm pretty sure the, the licensor in this case, the MLB, would have said, we need this to go multi-platform because it's not doing us any good for it to be a, a, an exclusive for you. So if you want to keep the license, you're going to release it multi-platform. And Sony agreed worth too much money not to. Um, so yeah, I'll be playing it on the Switch because baseball on the go is is the thing. We also have Lego Sky Wars, uh, Sky Wars, <laughs> Lego Star Wars comes out on the Switch on April five. Uh, yep, which is good. We have Sherlock Holmes: The Devil's Daughter coming out on Switch on April seven. Now this is on other platforms, I think already, but the developer Frogwares is putting it on Switch a bit later. I would recommend you go and buy it, even if you're only got a vague intention of playing it at some point, because Frogwares happens to be a Ukrainian developer and they need the money. Um, the whole country needs the support. So there you go. You can do a good thing and get yourself a new game to play in Sherlock Holmes. We have Makoto X coming out on Switch on April 7. Don't know what that is, but capture areas and save the girls from various troublemakers certainly sounds like an interesting game a popular game style in the late 80s makoto x hopes to resurrect the soul of the arcade genre while adding a modern twist sounds like a brawler to me and that'll be fine on april 7 we have the house of dead remake coming out which would almost be interesting because as a fan of the house of the dead in the arcades and stuff i do like the zombie shooty games Unfortunately, I do have to temper my expectations with this one because the developer publisher of it is um, Forever Entertainment and they are, for whatever reason, a pretty trashy shovelware developer publisher that seems to be picking up all kinds of big properties. They had the Panzer Dragoon remake from two years ago or thereabouts. That was them. 
and they didn't do a very good job with that. So I'm a little bit concerned about where the House of the Dead may go, but I'm tentatively interested in it anyway, because it has been a while since we had one of those. We also have- If they do like the light gun thing on the Switch, that'd be fun. Yeah, if they can actually manage to do it right. I really- I really, I can't, I, it amazes me that Forever Entertainment gets all these big properties and stuff. Um, they've got some other big stuff that they're doing with Square Enix as well. I can't remember which, but. Oh, they were, it, they were doing some remake. I do remember that now. Yeah. So whenever I see them, I go, oh, I was, I was looking forward to this, but now I'm not quite so much anymore. It really disappoints me that they managed to get all these big properties, but who knows, perhaps at some stage they'll break through and do something interesting. It wouldn't be the first developer publisher that started off in a pretty crappy spot and ended up doing some pretty good things. Uh, Chrono Cross does come out on Switch as well, and I'll be playing it on Switch, of course, because that seems to be the place to go for that. Then we have Chinatown Detective Agency coming out on April 7. This is an indie detective thing, but I'm quite keen on it. It's set in Singapore. It seems to be, I think it is an actual Singaporean developer that's created it. It was inspired by the classic Carmen San Diego games of the 80s and 90s. So you're talking about a kind of detective fiction investigation adventure game. And you'll be solving puzzles and uncovering leads, or doing research and investigation. So it seems like it's something that I will enjoy a great deal. And that comes out on April 7. We have 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim coming out on April 12. If you happen to miss this on the PlayStation, and a lot of people did, for whatever reason, do not miss it on the Switch. So 13 Sentinels, 13 Sentinels is just an incredible game. It tells an amazing story. Uh, it is a mix of, I want to say, a kind of tower defense style gameplay, but very different. And an incredibly complex woven narrative featuring some amazing characters. And it's a gorgeous game to look at as well. Just don't miss it, <laughs> please. So as someone who did miss it on the PS4, I've seen a lot of footage. Naughty of Harvest. I still, have no, I still have no idea how it plays. I have, the, visually, it makes no sense. Yeah, I think- It most looks people, so confusing. Most people who play it don't really know how it works either. It's. The, game, the gameplay stuff of it is quite secondary. Let's put it this way. It, that stuff is there. And in, in all seriousness, once you actually get into it, it's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But this is a narrative-driven game and everything is in support of the narrative. So that's it the looks, It looks like a number-crunching strategy kind of game, but it's, it's not that. No, it is more... It's kind of a tower defense thing, really. Um, yeah. yeah, you... I, I won't even try and explain it on this podcast because it's just too, it's too difficult to do so. But it looks so it looks so convoluted. What I, all I can say is that it does make sense once you actually sit down and play it. Once you get into it, once you run through the tutorials and all of that stuff, it all makes sense. But it is just secondary to the narrative that the thing is saying and telling. And it's got an amazing narrative. It's one of the one of the best game stories that I've ever played. And I obviously play a lot of narrative driven games, so the me to have that kind of regard for, regard for 13 Sentinels should tell you the kind of story that it is actually sharing. So don't miss it. Absolutely do not miss it. Speaking of games that you can pick up on Switch if you miss them on other platforms, Tormented Souls comes out on April 14. This game is going to end up with a pretty uh, 
pretty voice vocal cult following i would say uh it is a traditional style survival horror that goes right back to the roots of the genre it's kind of resident evil resident evil 2 inspired and it is good it is very good at doing what it does so if you're into your classic survival horror then tormented souls is coming to switch rolling on we have neptunia time of oh, neptunia times neptunia cross senred kagura ninja wars comes out on switch on april 19 that is the crossover game between those two very fan servicey properties the game itself is obviously very fan servicey but it is good fun it is good fun and i don't really have too much else to say about that i'm glad alan's not on the podcast or his ears would be burning right about now but it is good fun i will say that again rolling on And I don't know if there's too much else. Tassomachi is coming out on Switch as well on April 28. And then, as uh, Trent mentioned right at the start of the podcast, Nintendo Switch Sports comes out on April 29. So I guess that's Nintendo's big release for the month. And that'll be good. Were you about to just be like moving on and just go like to the number platform, like the Xbox or something, and just like forget all about the Xbox, Trent? Yeah, I've never done the Xbox. I don't do. I mean, I don't sometimes do the there's games. We need to say sometimes <laughs> that there's games on the platform. <laughs> You've been here for like three years, Trent. <laughs> Since you when know, we do I, well, well, I'm Xbox first, and you know, sometimes I'm like, well, if Matt's like, oh, well, you know, Xbox has no games. I don't know. It has Forza this month. Everyone buy Forza. Yeah, but they're all on game. Forza this month. They're all on Game Pass now, so you don't need me to to mention that they're there because you can play them for free. Because um, everyone's playing Tunic right now. Mm. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> back to Nintendo. <laughs> back to Nintendo Switch Sports. That comes out on April 29, and that'll be good fun. Uh, I'm sure it'll use the the motion controllers. I'm sure. And what do we got? What do we got in it this time? We have soccer, volleyball, ooh, volleyball, bowling, soccer. tennis, badminton, and swordplay. Chumbra. So basically, three different versions of tennis, uh, bowling, and soccer. Yeah. How? How? What? How? How did they do that? Ah, there you what, go. Do you, do you tie the Joy-Cons to your feet? What do you do? Well, you actually, you do. It says um, use a Joy-Con with a leg strap as accessory to kick the ball. So you actually do. Wow. Attach. That's weird. That's going to destroy some living rooms. <laughs> that's that's so weird. That's cool. Oh, there is golf as well. Yeah, I love. I love. They have to have golf. Golf is just a, a must have include in that. I'm. I'm. Incri- I'm intrigued by volleyball. I do like volleyball. Is it beach volleyball? Is it indoor volleyball? Volleyball seems like it would work well with the switch controls because you've got a you've got a um stick to move around, and then you can put it together to like do the sets and the spikes and stuff like. That well, the thing is, well. the thing is, volleyball isn't really even that much about moving around uh, if they want to automate the movement like they do with tennis or they did with tennis with the earlier with the original Wii sports then that's fine for the mechanics of volleyball too it's mostly about the three actions you know the set spike and and uh, block and yeah that would work fine with the switch controller i would think in motion controls that'd be fun i'll play that that'll be my yeah. thing and if it does if it sucks then i'll just go back to bowling because <laughs> Let's face it, that's the thing everybody mastered with Wii Sports. Bowling was pretty fun for the demo. 
Sorry, what was that? Oh, drink that. I was saying bowling was pretty fun with the demo because it was like um, the online. So it was like that in done in sections. So you would like slowly, it was basically battle royale, but you're playing bowling. I mean, it's probably how bowling <laughs> plays in real life. <laughs> bowling, <laughs> bowling royale. There you go. <laughs> no, it does, say, it does say here there is a pro league as well, which is pretty cool. I do like that idea as well, that it's now online connected and you can, you can play online and all that stuff. So. I imagine seven sports, seven sports. Yeah, just the seven sports. I think soccer, okay. two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, just the seven sports. Hmm. But it's not so much about you get resorts. It's not about quality, quantity. It's about quality, right? No, it's absolutely about quantity. It's we have we had Wii Sports Resort, Matt. Yeah, and then nobody played. Yeah, that where's our wave recent. racing? Exactly. Where's our wave racing, Matt? <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking you this as if you made the game. Nobody liked that stuff. Maybe Matt's working on Wave Racer. Wait, why am I saying Matt's working on this game? He's not a developer. I mean, well, he is a developer, I, but he's so not I will like... say, when DD, they drop Wave DD Racer on the wave I, am, I am in. They're going to drop Wave Racer on the, 60, on the 64 Switch online. Did they? Also on a Switch now. They haven't. I do. I'm waiting for them to. Oh. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Oh. I don't think they can because it's like there's licensing issues. I'm pretty sure Kawasaki is, isn't Kawasaki. Oh, is it actually? Licensed? Oh man, I think it it's might be. The, I think it might be the case that it is licensed. There it might be Kawasaki. Um, oh, don't don't quote me on this because I may be wrong. But I think I read vaguely somewhere that there are Kawasaki uh, jet skis in there, and as a result, they don't have the license, so they can't touch it again. Mm. Which would not surprise me. Once again, this is why piracy is good people. You can still play that game. You just can't do it through <laughs> legitimate ways because licensing has killed the future potential of it's it's that. like the memes going around at the moment for like uh movie and TV streaming. It's like, you know, Netflix coming out, everyone stopped pirating, but then uh now all these streaming services are like, let's put ads in and still charge people everyone the piracy like comes comes back. So it's like the Simpsons meme where Barney yeah, gets yeah. thrown out of the bar and then <laughs> It's, it's entrepreneur culture where like you start by offering a good product and then you progressively make it worse to make money. So get ready for Game Pass to be terrible in two years' time. Well, uh, I've been only saying that for five or six years now. It's about time people started to listen to me about these things because I do know my shit. And I, <laughs> and I was always saying... You know, they can subscription put some services ads in terrible. Game Pass. Like you're playing a game and then you have to put your hands up and scream yes from McDonald's, like the PlayStation, uh, you know, uh, thing they've painted, they've got. I mean, the ads are already in our games, so I'm not sure how much further they can go. Yeah. Anyway, back to the lists. Not that there was all that much. I guess April is the probably the quietest month uh, of the year to date, but there is some stuff. We all agree we're going to play some stuff Wii Sports. That's you, Trent. What about you, Harvard? No, that's a given. Every, Wii Sports is probably going to be chill enough that everyone's going to give that a try. I, I'm going to preempt what you're going to say, and I'm going to say Tormented Souls, because it's been a while since I've played one of those old-school Resident Evil-style games, and no one's really making them. So if you say this one is doing what Resident Evil 1 and 2 did effectively, then I'm in. Yeah, it is. It's very much in that mold. I, I'm surprised you didn't play the original release of it. To be I've honest. never heard of it. It sounds completely generic. Oh, if someone okay. was like, hey, go play Tormented Souls, I'd be like, no. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I did review it on the PlayStation 
last year when it came out. Uh, it was around the Halloween time. So I think it was, I think it came out the wrong time. Yeah, I might have missed it. There was a bunch of other horror games coming out at that time because the season and all that. But yeah, don't don't give this one a miss. I think it's quite good. It's well made. It is. It doesn't do anything that really sets it apart from those early era games from the genre. It is very much inspired by rather than a build on. But it will give you what you're looking for if you're a fan of that. So yeah, it's a bit it's a bit gritty compared to those. I think. I mean. It doesn't have the sense of humor of um, of Resident Evil One in particular, but and, and it has a little bit more of a grimy kind of approach, I guess, if I was to characterize it compared to the relatively elevated style of uh, and aesthetics of Resident Evil. But yeah, I, I I enjoyed it for what it was, and I enjoyed the way it was designed around those same kind of labyrinth style levels and the puzzles and the need to find keys and all that stuff it's all there so yeah it's good uh for me i'm intrigued i am very intrigued by this uh sumachi i I'm, i hadn't heard about it before i started reading off the list uh, to be honest this week but now i'm keen it's been published by players and which means it's probably a very indie game i'm just gonna quickly google up what it might look like and oh i'm surprised it's 3d and everything when i saw players in i figured it was going to be some kind of 2d kind of game but no it looks like it's a full 3d rpg the art style is lovely and i am very intrigued so that's the one i'm picking for this month all right so What's a Chrono Cross? Okay. Well, I mean, Chrono Cross is a given, but it is such a... <laughs> look, look, for me, like I said, I haven't played Chrono Cross before, and I am certainly keen to play it, but at the same time, I'm very keenly aware of the fact that it has that reputation of being not Chrono Trigger. <laughs> so I'm tempering my... Was that the DS one? No, Trigger was the DS ones. Trigger went on DS, yeah. Chrono Trigger's- Cross has never been released on anything, because... Square Enix was like people hated it. Yeah, trigger trigger's been on everything. You can get it on GBA, you can get it on modern systems. It's on, on pretty much now. yeah, you can get it on phones. It's on pretty much everything. So it's the game that Square Enix has been particularly good at preserving, but we've never seen Chrono Cross on anything since the PlayStation release. But again, I'm I'm certainly looking forward to playing it. I'm just tempering my expectations against what it may well be. I don't know. I don't know. We'll go to some music and then we'll come back with Wii Sports the... music. Wii Sports music. Oh yeah, why not? Wii Sports That's music. Wii Sports. Alan's gonna put actual Wii Sports music in the in the thing, not Nintendo Switch Sports music. Please do absolutely. In my head, this is Wii Sports. Wii... <laughs> I'm calling the Nintendo Switch version Wii Sports. You can't stop me. Wii Sports free. Yeah. Wii Sports free. free.
Right. So in recent days and or weeks, depending on when you listen to this, a little humble game called The Stranger of Paradise was released, and it was the latest in the Final Fantasy series as such. It's not a numbered Final Fantasy. It's not Final Fantasy 16, but it is a reimagining of the original Final Fantasy. So it was done by Square Enix and Koei Tecmo's Team Ninja. So the same team that did Neo basically took their expertise of Neo and threw it into a Final Fantasy Souls-like action RPG, which was not what anyone expected because when they actually sat down to play it, they realized it was basically taking the piss out of both the Souls series and Final Fantasy. And that threw people, and that is what we're talking about here on this podcast. Basically, to to use the technical term for it, (laughs) we're talking about metatextuality, which sounds very big and impressive and smarter, but I swear to you, we're not. It's just... (laughs) We are not smart. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That is just what it is called. It is basically the idea that you take a existing text and by text, I do mean, you know, theatre, music, film, whatever, and then make a new text that, that, that is in some way an observation or a deconstruction of that original. And it is actually really exciting that this has happened with video games in the last couple of years. There has been a couple of other ones, and we'll talk about that shortly enough, but it is interesting that it has happened because it does suggest a certain level of maturity of video games as an art form that we have this body of content, this body of works that artists are now starting to explore and deconstruct as a way of kind of not only providing a homage to the original work, but also investigating the nature of games and the, the themes of these, these games. And um, it's just very interesting and I, I kind of make this mention in my review, but for me, it is feels very similar to some of the great works of theatre that I really love. For example, there's Tom Stoppard's Rome, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which, is, which takes the original work of Hamlet from Shakespeare and then creates an entire kind of conversation about both Hamlet and its key themes by being this satirical kind of takedown of Hamlet. And that is very much what I got out of Stranger of Paradise. So I love that this is happening. It's not the first time it's even happened with the Final Fantasy series. I would say that Final Fantasy VII Remake does a very similar thing in that it takes the original Final Fantasy VII and reworks it in a way that kind of talks about Final Fantasy VII as an artwork. And Stranger of Paradise is the same thing. So that's what we're going to be talking about after that long introduction to this section. Um, I know you've played a little bit of Stranger of Paradise Harvard. Did you get much of a sense of that through the bit that you've played? Should we talk about Stranger of Paradise first or should we talk about just this technique in general first? Well, let's let's talk about them in parallel and you can use other examples if you think they're a better example. Because I have a lot of thoughts about the technique. I think Stranger of Paradise is... So I haven't played enough to get the whole um, satirical angle of it, but there it is just so painted with the the stuff from Final Fantasy 1, like even the stuff that's become the memes, like immediately going to face off against Garland and all the reputation that that original narrative has is very funny. I, I love the premise that they just chucked 
bring extremely muscular dudes into the world of Final Fantasy and being like, <laughs> it's just it's absolutely taking the piss of the whole prophecy and instead just punching your way through the, the world. So that's been fun. I think um, original game is kind of iconic enough that if you say certain areas or certain characters, you kind of just pick up on what's happening. So I think they picked a good, I guess not targets, but like a good for what they're trying to do. I think it comes across very clearly what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it is very obvious what they're doing right from the outset. It's it's definitely not um, a, a game where you need to be interpretive of what it's saying to, to get the core message of it. It is very, very much a satirical take on Final Fantasy One's themes and a subversion of them in a way that is very clear from the outset. For a good example of that, um, everybody who's played Final Fantasy One knows that the first town that you go to after the original town, so once you start in your adventure, you go off and start exploring the world, the first little village you come to has become infested by pirates. It's been taken over by this pirate captain and you go and defeat the pirate captain after talking to like one person in the town. And as a result of that, you get the boat, which is a major kind of development in the game and, and so on and so forth. The way that Final Fantasy, uh, or Stranger of Paradise, sorry, the way that Stranger of Paradise does that is it shows you that actually the pirate was kind of good for the town. <laughs> he, was, he was protecting them and in the absence of other leadership, which is all very absent, uh, he was actually something of a, a hero to the people. So you do get that direction that the, the pirate has taken over the town and uh, that is why certain resources are, are not available to you at that point in time. But actually, everybody else kind of likes that they're around. So it does do an interesting little subversion of that. It takes the exact story. This is the, the overall plot still progresses in the same way. So once you defeat this pirate, you get to progress to the next part of the world. It keeps all of that, but at the same time, it reframes it in a way that makes you look at events of the original Final Fantasy in a different way. And you realize, oh, hang on, this, this automatic assumption that you can just rock up to a town and then go fighting stuff and take their stuff is, is a little bit of a simplification about how heroism works. And this game just does that over and over again. Like every, every opportunity. What do you mean the heroes are the bad guys? <laughs> or in this case the heroes heroes are the guys that play their podcast um or their their ipod rather than listen to a serious conversation and then just kind of walk out the room that's this this game has a lot of those kind of little visual puns which are which are good fun it it also is very kind of communicative about the final fantasy series as a whole there's a great level uh which is very linear. It's set, in, it's set in a forest and it feels like this forest should be this kind of wide open space to explore. It looks like it should be, like you can see horizons and things that suggest that it's big and open, but you're actually on a very narrow path, a very, very narrow path in this one. And you'll be thinking, well, this is a bit of a wasted opportunity. Why is this level so linear? And then you'll realize, oh, hang on, it's playing the Final Fantasy 13 music in the background. Um, so it, it it's kind of a... a and it's a joke. It makes a joke of the level design um, about Final Fantasy Thirteen and the fact that people were were hypercritical of it being so linear and all that kind of stuff. So this game is just full of those little jokes, in jokes, uh, deconstruction, subversions, and it's uh, it's just fascinating that they've done this. Um, 
what I was always interested about with this whole thing, with meditative textuality as a general thing, is whether the audience is kind of along for the ride. Because generally with video games, what we expect is that the video game is going to be this high quality thing. And you know, in the Souls-like series, I guess we can point to Elden Ring now, it, it, people kind of expect that it's going to be this, this thing that takes gameplay fundamentally seriously, that it's not making a joke of the gameplay. But Stranger of Paradise kind of does make a joke of the gameplay, and I was wondering how audiences would get along with that. I've been quite impressed, actually. It seems like people do get the humour that the fact that this game doesn't play as well as Elden Ring is kind of the point. But, um, yeah, it was interesting to me whether that would work because... I think that's a smart thing to have done, knowing that you're releasing a game around the same time as, you know, the, direct, the developer known for making this style of game. It's interesting that they took this approach. Well, I was kind of wondering at the start, because the early previews and all that stuff we got of it kind of suggested that it was actually going to be a more serious... Um, a more serious interpretation of the Souls-like formula that it was going to try and do what From Software does with or with Souls and Elden Ring and whatever, but perhaps it was just those early previews were designed to get people leaning in the way, um, or perhaps it was that they did change tack, to kind of change direction after those initial impressions to to make it a little bit more self-aware, but. Either way, what we have got here is a game that is good. It plays really nicely, but at the same time, it doesn't play like Elden Ring nicely, if that makes sense. It's kind of, yeah, it, it's really hard to explain because once again, we kind of yeah. expect that video games are made to a certain set of qualities. And this one is high quality, well-made and very enjoyable but it's not good in the way that we generally expect good to be. Do you yeah, think it's I'm more niche, think of it. like in the sense that only Final Fantasy fans would get this sort of thing? Like, do you think that like if someone else uh, which never had played Final Fantasy before or Dark Souls style games picked up this game, but they would be like, what is going on? Why am I on this ride? This is weird. I don't get it sort of thing. Like, do you, do you think that it would be more niche because of that? Or do you think that it would have more overall appeal to other gamers or general public? Well, I mean, that's kind of the thing with metatextuality. It kind of assumes that you've played the original text, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it's a little bit hard to, to quite get it. Uh, and to go back to my example of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, can you enjoy that play if you haven't already seen Hamlet or uh, familiar with Hamlet? Yeah, I guess there's, there is humour in there that is kind of universal and not related to the original text. But at the same time, the fundamental quality of the thing is that original. And we saw that with Final Fantasy VII Remake. Um, if you hadn't played the original Final Fantasy VII, which is not that many people, and Square Enix was probably assuming that, but if you haven't played the original, then would you quite get what that game is saying? I would suggest probably not. And I would certainly say that's the case with Stranger of Paradise as well. If you don't know what the four kind of warriors of light are, if you don't know what the crystals are, if you don't know what the Souls-like formula is if you don't know that the, you know, the conversation about difficulty modes and all that kind of stuff. If you don't, if you're not aware of all of this stuff, then uh, a lot of what Stranger Paradise offers will fly over your head. But see, for, for me, that's okay. 
uh, again, as the maturity of video games, as a sign of the maturity of video games, there needs to be that understanding that not every game needs to be for every person or designed with, to, to have kind of that kind of absolute mass market appeal where every person that picks it up can enjoy it. The point of this one is that it is there for people who have enjoyed the original Final Fantasy and do enjoy the Souls-like games and want something that deconstructs those. And that's okay. Uh, at least as far as the art stuff, at least as far as the artistry goes, that's okay. Yeah, I think it's just, if you haven't played the original Final Fantasies and you play this one, it's just kind of a big, dumb action game. You know, like you, you can still have fun pressing buttons. It's still made pretty well. It doesn't really matter if a joke flies over your head. I think the, and maybe Matt, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong because I haven't played the whole thing, but the narrative itself doesn't feel completely beholden to the original games in that you won't understand it if you haven't played the earlier ones. It's a story that still makes sense but it builds upon elements from the previous ones. So certain things have more significance or certain things have like a, a deeper significance if you're aware of the history. But if you're not, it's still just an action quest kind of story. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't played the original Final Fantasy, then, for example, when you get up to the pirate, Bicky, I always can say his name is Bicky. I don't know if it's actually meant to be Bicky or Bicky or or however it's meant to pronounce that pirate's name once you get up to him in stranger of paradise you'll still recognize that he's this pirate dude and you meet to defeat him because there's a boss battle and then you'll get to progress the narrative and there's cutscenes to explain why he's there and like you say it all makes sense if you haven't played the original but a lot of his appeal as a character in this one a lot of kind of the the underlying message and the reason that he's a pretty cool character in this game does rely on you understanding his role in the original Final Fantasy. So it is just one of those games. I would definitely recommend people play the original Final Fantasy before playing this for those reasons. But if you do happen to pick it up, like Harvard said, then you do still get to enjoy a big dumb action game, which is a lot of fun. And has it has a lot of stuff going for it just as a pure action game. Even if you put aside the narrative stuff, it has this really neat Diablo style loot system where you will get an awful lot of loot uh, and get to play around with costumes and characters and all that kind of stuff. It just really works as a, as a stupid action game. But yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I, I do think that you're, you're better off if you have played the original. Yeah, I, I haven't played the original since like probably 20 years, like 25, I don't know. Like it's a long time ago. And for me, the way the brain works, I probably final all i know is final fantasy has blue guy red guy and whatever and that's probably better actually <laughs> like if you if you have this hazy memory of what the game used to be that's a good place to be when you're playing stranger of paradise because you'll go to a town and be like hey that's kind of familiar and then it'll it'll do it'll make work its magic right it'll like play with your memory of it whereas i i don't know how well it would work if you closely did a comparative study like it's not like hamlet and rosencrantz and bjornstone when you're meant to read them next to each other and write an essay about it i i kind of disagree on that as somebody who has played final fantasy a lot i actually played final fantasy in parallel to stranger of paradise just to oh just and it to, works it does it does work as a as a thing where you're a bit like hamlet and rosencrantz and bjornstone are dead you actually do experience them in parallel and then write an essay about them that's what i wanted to do after coming away from it and that's why it is so interesting to me as a work of it's probably the best work of metatextuality that we have as yet the most clear kind of 
parallel to Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that did our Final Fantasy one and this one because what this one does with the original Final Fantasy one is just so interesting uh, the way it subverts it and the way it uses that base narrative in a way to create its own messaging and to uh, to have an underlying um, kind of absurdist narrative too I mean the the actual kind of um, philosophical underpinning, if you want to call it that, of this game is actually very similar to Stoppard's own work. So I would actually genuinely be surprised if this author or the author, the the, the writer behind the narrative of Stranger of Paradise is not familiar with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the Dead. The parallels are just too clear for me um, for it not to be for it not to be quite deliberate. So then I might pivot to a different point then, and Matt, you'll really enjoy this one, is that if you want to make a game with such close connection to an earlier title, the earlier title needs to be available. You know, they needs to be accessible to the point that even if you didn't grow up with the game, and I definitely didn't grow up with Final Fantasy 1, you can still play it quite easily. And mm. I can even see a possibility where Stranger of Paradise is released with like in it with the Final Fantasy one pixel remaster double pack or whatever, you know, like it needs to signal to players, hey, this is your required reading if that's if you want to enjoy the game to its fullest. Well, I mean, Which, I, I really think they wouldn't have done it because for a start, they actually just re-released Final Fantasy one as that pixel remaster. So there was they were making money from it. But really, they should have put the pixel remaster in the game as like a, a menu option off the main menu or something for that exact reason. Mm. Your your enjoyment of this game is definitely enhanced by being familiar well, like with the original Or like a click here work. to go to the store and buy it. No, no, it should, be like, it, should, it should be like, a, it should be like a pack. Um, a bit like, you know, well, I, it's I not guess. going to be a pack. <laughs> if, if you were going to sell a copy of um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the Dead, it really should come with Hamlet. It was, saying that it doesn't so i guess that's kind of a moot point but too too much capitalism involved in this industry but yeah that's the i actually uh, have a more weirder point in terms of how capitalism works and in terms of how gamers play games what if this game becomes final fantasy one in the sense that future generations say go and pick up final fantasy one this is final fantasy one for them if that well, makes it, sense, it, like it this won't. is the remake, this is the version, no. and then the original Final Fantasy is just lost to memory, and the story continues and gets you know edited and modified and remade, and but it's based off this version of the Final Fantasy one experience. No, it, it can't happen like that um, for the exact reason that it's not a remake, it's not a remaster, it's not a reimagining. This is this is the thing that. Um, I, I guess, I think we talked about this on a podcast in the past that these terms are a little bit too limiting for what developers can do with this stuff, that everything- I, I do remember this. Because yeah, what, what you're saying, that applies to Resident Evil remake, absolutely. But not to this one, because it's just too different. Well, that's the thing. We, we, the, there's this obsession in the industry and in putting everything into these nice little neat categories that it's going to be a reimagining or remake or remaster or whatever. This is not that. This is an independent, separate project. It's not. It, it it uses the original Final Fantasy, and it does so in a very fundamental way to the game. But it is not an attempt to re anything that original Final Fantasy. This is its own separate work, and it's just like again, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead versus Hamlet. That 
the existence of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern the Dead did not replace Hamlet by any means. And um, they, they exist in perfect parallel to one another to the point that we inflict them on school kids to the point that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern the Dead <laughs> is not funny anymore. By the time you finish reading that and studying that at school, you're not laughing at its jokes anymore. But um, they, they just exist in parallel. And that is the best way to describe this. And it is just... It really is exciting to me that this is happening. I don't think it's going to happen too early, too often in the immediate future, but that this is now part of the game development toolkit, that there is a pathway to, to show that this can actually work. And there is an awful lot of classic games out there that would benefit from having this kind of look at them uh, is a creative potential that I'm very interested in potentially so seeing explored more. Unfortunately, it does seem to be... I do want to say it does seem to be the only there there does seem to be only one uh, artist that is doing it. I didn't realize this until I was researching my review later on. But the writer of Final Fantasy VII Remake and the writer of Stranger of Paradise are actually the same person. So I reckon that this is just the writer's creative vision. This has nothing to do with Nomura. People pointed to Nomura being the producer of both Remake and Stranger of Paradise, as though that's kind of um, Relevant? I don't think it is. I think it is just entirely due to this this writer guy, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head on this podcast. But he well, seems to be. Got to shut him up. Yeah, he seems to be the one that's <laughs> responsible for for the creative vision behind both games, and I would suggest that he's probably the only one that is doing this, at least in the. Near I was going to say, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Is that Square Enix is uniquely positioned to do this because they have that long running history of IP and a willingness to be risky with it and the resources to make something on this scale, they're really the only developer who will push this out. Because if we think of other companies, if you look at like Nintendo or, I don't know why Bethesda was the first thought that came to my head, but they've been doing a lot of similar metatextual stuff in Fallout. They are too risk adverse. Then they will not rely on anybody having played on a previous game because they need to sell copies. Whereas I think Square Enix, are making an aesthetic vision by, by integrating elements from existing properties that they own. So I can't see this kind of storytelling coming from anywhere else because either the developer doesn't have the IP or the original resources to make a reference to the existing text, or it has that much IP and doesn't want to take any risks with it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I did, I did make this kind of point in my review at Stretcher of Paradise that... Um, this is so fundamentally transformative to the original Final Fantasy. It would be like taking a Call of Duty and making a pacifist game as a remake. Um, or taking, what's another classic IP that another publisher owns? Um, if you were to take a, an Assassin's Creed game, for example, and make an entirely linear pathway-based game that is like Prince of Persia like if you're if you're reimagining of Assassin's Creed 3 was actually Prince of Persia the American Revolution edition then that would be roughly kind of how transformative these companies would need to be with these properties to, to bring them in line with what has been done with Stranger of Paradise and that's just not going to happen Square Enix is pretty much the only publisher out there willing to allow that level of creative risk with its most important property um, so you, you are right in that regard. It's not something we're going to see with the big ones too often, even beyond the fact that 
it was it seems to be just the the creative vision of the writer who I've just checked his name is Kazuhige Nojima. Um, you probably haven't heard of him because everybody just thinks these are Nomura games, but he seems to be the one that is that is behind this. Um, so even beyond the fact that there seems to be one guy that's doing this, the commercial reality is that companies aren't going to allow this to happen. Um, but looking for through- a big developer or publisher might come out, like Microsoft might be like, oh, let's leverage one of our IPs sort of thing. And like, they might be like, influenced by what Square Inks is doing right now. And, you know, it might be the one of the big reveals for something, you know, when the next generation comes out or something like that. It's like, here's this game, it's an old IP, everyone loves it, but it's like a weird twisted reimagining on the original. Like if they did, you know, what's that one Ubisoft game which everyone keeps wanting, but keeps dying. So like that would probably be what Ubisoft would reboot and do the same sort of thing with and reimage based off one of the original to bring new fans in but also entertain people it's, which were then, fans of the series to, to give you i mean if microsoft was to do something like that then it would be something along the lines of a halo game which is questioning the the kind of the the nationalistic xenophobia and hero worship of master chief and all of a sudden you know master chief is is no longer this paragon of uh, stoic heroism and, and stuff. That would be so what we're that, talking that about. And they just exists actually. Does That's it? the Halo novels. It's the Halo novels. And it's also the, um, I think it's called ODST. There's like a really, really niche Halo game that's actually very critical of the, of the underlying narrative. And it is non-linear and it is self-referential and no one played it. <laughs> Right. Well, I'm not that familiar with Halo, I guess, to, to be to be into the kind of the niche stuff. Into it's really hard to find novel. Out. Yeah, I, I, you know, if it exists, then great. But I don't see them doing that with the the Halo itself. You know, why would they? Um, maybe a Call of Duty. Maybe they just like maybe once they get Activision, they're just sick of Call of Duty being a proper because game I mean, just the, flip the, it on the side. The the other thing is you've got to approach these things as a kind of a creative work first and. Um, uh, a piece of content to sell seconds. And I think that Square Enix knows that its audience are perhaps a little bit more open to this than Microsoft's audience would be or Sony's audience would be. You just look at the, the, the respective fan bases uh, and you can see that the fans for Halo or for uh, The Last of Us or whatever, they're not that open to to subversion. <laughs> they're, they're not that open. Yeah, they're really not. To, they to, just want a new game. Yeah, they're they're not that open to having their their idea of what these characters are challenged. Um, and that perhaps is a little bit for a discussion beyond the scope of this podcast for another one down the track. But just in general, Western Western entertainment, Western IPs and stuff. That's the management of those properties is more about giving fans more of what they wanted. Um, Even if it's sort of like a take I mean, on something, it's here's, like, here's oh, a, well, here's a, it's fun and light. Here's, here's a really great example of it, that uh, 
with the second Star Wars film in the, the recent remake series. I can't remember which one it was subtitled as, the, the one that Rian Johnson made. The one that everyone didn't like. Yeah, that was the one that no one liked because it did these things. It challenged the established kind of uh, expectations of Star Wars. It, it, it kind of subverted them. It was less than subtle and less than intelligent about it because Rian Johnson's not exactly the most subtle filmmaker, but uh, it did a lot of what Stranger of Paradise does um, to Star Wars and people hated it that much that they brought J.J. Abrams on board for the third and kind of final of that trilogy and told him quite obviously to, to give the Star Wars fans exactly what they wanted and the mental and the logic, logical leaps that he had to make to make that third Star Wars film be the Star Wars film that Star Wars fans wanted was uh, resulted in a less than admirable film um, and they ended up creating something that was pretty terrible <laughs> as a result of Isn't that. also then the, the complaints that, oh, well, the film is, you know, yes, is what we want sort of thing, but it's like not good because it's doing all this stuff. Like you can't have it both ways. <laughs> well, that was Actually, the thing. Star Wars is a great example because the, the Star Wars games are doing this to the Star Wars movies series. There's lots of video games that take this subverted, subversive attitude towards the stories of the films, and they are mildly successful at it, I guess. Um, I, I mean, I haven't played enough of the, the more recent Star Wars games to, to get a sense of that, I guess. Um, I, I would say that from, from the experience that I have had about them, they do kind of locate within the Star Wars series, and they, they kind of might exist to give you a different perspective on things. But in terms of actually deconstructing Star Wars, I would suggest they don't really do that. This is this is another level kind of entirely. Um, but yeah, if there was a Star Wars game that was to challenge the entire idea of Star Wars as a kind of um, Western set in space epic thing, then that would be interesting to me. I'd certainly love to see it, but I just don't know if there exists the creative thrust to, to make that happen. Um, now that you say it that way, Eastern I, I set agree. space. So, yeah, I mean, this, this is another level in time. This is something that is, it's difficult, like you've probably seen me stumble over my words in this podcast, it's difficult to, to fully articulate just how much these kind of works that you know stranger paradise uh and rosencrantz and grooms of the dead how much these works kind of deconstruct and explore the original work this is this is a little bit different to to just kind of um to just challenging the established norms of the the property so yeah like I said, I, I don't see this happening too often with too many other properties out there, but the fact that it exists is, again, uh, a sign of maturity for the video game industry, and I'm, I'm impressed it happened quite quickly, so quickly, really, because it's, the, the games industry still has only been around for, what, 50 years or so as, as it is um, in, the, in the form that it is. So that's actually pretty fast development for the, for, for the, the industry. It took film a lot longer than that to get to this point it took literature a lot longer than that so yeah the games industry is maturing this quickly 
it helps that games had these prior mediums to see what the possibilities would be. Like I'm almost, like you mentioned even, I'm almost certain that they're drawing influence from theater and from novels and films to do things like this. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It does help that they do have uh, a lot of existing thought and uh, development in terms of how narrative works to, to work on. So you're, you're right on that for sure. I have one more question about Swords, uh, not Swords, why do I keep calling Stranger of Swords City? Stranger of Paradise. Uh, <laughs> if you think about how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead kind of has lasting appeal now because of its relationship to Hamlet. It's a play that people will continue to, to read and remember and it exists both on its own merits and because it allows us to better understand the, the intricacies of the original text. Do you think Stranger of Paradise has that kind of lifespan or do you think it'll just be like a drop in the bucket and then we're back to Final Fantasy one is great? Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I, for me, the video game industry is pretty transitory in terms of the longevity that video games have um, these days. And there's just so many that get released that um yeah i can't see stranger of paradise being that game that we're talking about in 40 years as as reverently as we talk about final fantasy one now um i don't think that's a reflection of the quality of the game i think it's just the nature of the video game industry being so kind of product driven that things like this one will kind of disappear as as an experiment that an experiment that worked but an experiment nonetheless that will be replaced by the next game that does something kind of kind of similar so yeah that's that is certainly an interesting point about the video game industry in comparison to some other art forms i think Elden ring will be the game this year that ends up getting added to the canon and that's it um I mean, but, it might not, right? Like Sekiro is not in the canon. No one's talking about that anymore. Yeah, but Sekiro also died very quickly on release. Um, people loved it. People talked about it. We had the discourse about the difficulty levels and all that stuff. Uh, it certainly was the center of attention for a short while. But even back then, you could tell that this game was not going to be one that people remembered as reverently as Dark Souls. Elden Ring is more Dark Souls. It is going to be a game that persists on and will be very fondly talked about for a very long time to come. It's more kind of- no, in Something big will happen this year. Elden Ring only has one more month tops on it in discourse, and it's an eight out of 10 no, no, no. game. Yes. <laughs> Elden, Elden, Ring, Elden Ring is going to persist. I guarantee you that. Um, the, the, only, the only really transgressive subversive game that I can think of that has that level of uh, um, longevity to it is the near and near automata um, both of those games are ones that have entered the canon and will stay there for being masterpieces and all that stuff and yeah i don't see stranger of paradise being on that level um but again that's be interesting to talk about what becomes canonical then because i mean 20 years in the future we could see someone go hey let's do another take on neo and do the same thing right but well we may well do that canonical status we may well do, and that will be a, another discussion for, for another day, but we will do that. I think that is a definitely a worthwhile topic to talk about. But for now, we're going to go to some music um, and then come back and then we'll talk about something else. 
okay, so let's let's do that conversation. Let's have that conversation about the canon games um, and how a game enters the canon, because that was a good topic proposal that Harvard made in the in the last section of the podcast, and um, it wasn't originally on the plan of things to do, but. It has piqued my interest. Piqued spelled P I Q U E D, not P E A P E D. There's a bit of spelling advice for everyone. Piqued my interest, um, but yes, I do think it is worth doing, Harvard. So yeah, I think it's like if you want to make a game like Stranger of Paradise and connect to Final Fantasy One, the game you connect to has to be a canonical game, right? It has to be something that you can assume people have played or will play, even though it's like thirty years old. Thirty years old. Wow, thirty thirty years old, forty years old, thirty years old. Old game. Uh, so my question was, how does a game achieve that status that people will continue talking about it 35 years down the line? Or are there certain things that developers or players can do to elevate games to that status? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing, isn't it? It's like um, the the immediate assumption would be, oh, if it's a best-selling game, then it, you know, it, it enters the canon and becomes that thing that everybody has to play and talk about and becomes a classic as such. But that's not the case at all. It's absolutely uh, not the case. Yeah, if you look at, and this is where you can draw into other mediums. If you look at the best-selling novels list for like 1910, we've not heard of a single one of them. Whereas nearly all of the novels from that era that we care about today flopped on their original release. Yeah, and it is kind of the same with the video game industry. I mean, Call of Duty is a top-seller game each year, but would anybody say that any of those Call of Duties are classics? Perhaps Modern Warfare 2, if you only, want to stretch. Only Modern Warfare 1, I'd, I'd say. Modern Warfare modern, 1, Was it Modern Warfare 1? Yeah. It, which Warfare one's the one, one with, was the one that changed everything. Which one was the one with no Russian? That was 2. But 2 was like no Russianing because 1 had that transgressive moment. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the thing that everybody talks about with Call of Duty, and of course, I'm by no means a Call of Duty expert, but everybody knows about No Russian, and No Russian would strike me as the the thing that kind of hit the zeitgeist and became that cultural... So, and this is me also using my lack of knowledge of Call of Duty. No one cares if I spoil Call of Duty 4 here, do they? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. The only Call that. of Duty I liked was the one which had uh, Old Bud, which, you know, everyone hated at the time because he was a bad person. But the other, the actual advanced warfare. Okay, Call of Duty 4. Spacey. So, yeah. Call of Duty 4, narrative-wise, was written to be this really gritty, transgressive war story because Call of Duty 1 to 3 had previously been, I think, World War 1 or World War 2 games. And so what's really memorable about 4 is that it has that opening execution sequence and then the player gets almost nuked towards the end. Like, it's a big, shocking thing. And then Call of Duty 6 was like, we need our big, shocking thing. What do we do? No Russian. So that's just been the calling card of Call of Duty is midway through the game, there's meant to be this big, shocking thing. But it's just not the same as the original anymore because you know what's going to happen. Right. Well, I mean, I take your word for it. Um... But yeah, like like I said, for, for me, it was when I think about the, the library of Call of Duties, the only one that stands out has perhaps been something that is worth, um, well, it ha- has entered the canon as a, as a meaningful thing within the broader discussion about video games is, is the one with the no Russian in it, <laughs> because that's the one that people usually reference when they talk about um, the potential for Call of Duty to 
to say something and in this case to to offend and shock in a way that kind of uh, inspires uh, people to to think but to get back to my original point um the the game in that genre in that shooter genre which has definitely and unequivocally entered the the canon as a work of art and um a piece worth discussing and uh, talking about uh, pulling apart is Spec Ops, the line. I that was wondering is, where you're going with that. Yeah. Because you could have either said Half-Life or Spec Ops, but that no, would have been no, two very different conversations. <laughs> Spec, Spec Ops is the military shooter that is definitely the the canon military shooter for <clears throat> people that take video games seriously. And it did not sell well at all on release. And it's also just not a very good military shooter. Like if you want to play a military shooter, you would not play Spec Ops. Yeah. But if you want to play a good game, if you want to play a kind of can, <laughs> if if you want to play a kind of canon game, a game that people um, will be pulling apart for some time to come, then it would be Spec Ops, and that's entirely because it does subvert expectations about military shooters, and that doesn't mean that every game that enters the canon needs to be subversive in some way. But in this case. Um, I think if I was to try and put a general rule on things, for, for a game to enter the canon, it needs to do something that actually does inspire thought, does force you to think about games beyond, oh, their, yeah. beyond, beyond their entertainment value. And it doesn't, there are a lot of different ways you can do that. For example, uh, the original Super Mario Brothers, that's in there as a canon, as a canon game because it has inspired people on how to do how to do a tutorial, how to get people to learn how to play a, a game. Bush is a cloud. With, <laughs> how, how to get so, people to, to learn how to play a game with, without giving them instructions. It has been kind of the iconic way of doing that, and people still pull that apart to this day, that opening three or four seconds of Super Mario Brothers, and just how intelligent it is in terms of design that it, by the end of those three or four seconds, you know how to play Mario Brothers and you've not read a single word. That's, that is an example of what I'm talking about here. Spec Ops the Line, which subverts the military shooter is another example. Um, Nier and Nier Automata are both examples of canon games because they force you to get philosophical about stuff. They're not necessarily subversive, they are, but that's not kind of the point. The, the real point is that uh, they they force you to think about games on a uh, narrative on uh, on a deeper level, and people keep having conversations about those games and what they actually mean. That is uh, another very valuable quality to them. Um, so I, th I think conversation is is really the key here, and also the way I think about it is the canonical game needs to have have some kind of gravitational pull. It needs to be this kind of anchor where if you're playing any other game like it, you just can't ignore how much either influence or innovation or meaning that the canonical game has had. My thought is with actually Breath of the Wild. And I don't know if you'd call this a canonical game, Matt, but if you play an open world game before Breath of the Wild and then one that was made after, you can feel the influence that Breath of the Wild had in just everything from the design to the progression to everything. Like the, influ the influence of that game is, is very palpable. And well, it's not just that. It's also, like you say, it also creates conversation that 
now you can't have a game where a dude's standing on the top of a mountain looking out over uh, some kind of landscape and not have some people say, oh, this was inspired by Breath of the Wild. <laughs> Breath of the Wild didn't yeah. do that first, but because Breath of the Wild has entered that canon, that yeah, it just becomes that. Yeah, when we think about people standing on mountains. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting. I, I, saw, I saw some tweets of which were basically like people playing Eldering. It's like, I went back to Breath of the Wild after playing Eldering sort of thing. And then it's like, I, people were appreciating it more. And I was like, that's, that's interesting. That's a good well, phrase. I went back to is, the, is what you would call a canonical game. And that is why Elden Ring is definitely, I, I can say, even though it's only been out for a month at the time that we do re-record this podcast, I can say unequivocally that that Elden Ring will be a canon game because it is just too fundamentally driving conversations. And people are going to be comparing open world games to what Elden Ring does for a long time to come. The colorful open world games are going to be compared to Breath of the Wild. Um, the Genshin impacts and the dark and whatever. ones are going to be Elden Ring. And the, the dark and serious, more somber ones are going to be compared to Elden Ring. It's just going to happen. Uh, Elden Ring is bad design, shakes everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We it's know horrible. you we know you don't like it, Trent, but uh believe it or not, a lot of people do. And um You know what would be more fun if it was a Warriors game? And I was like slashing people and like it was medieval. It could still have that somber sort of dark sort of nest to it. But if it was like, you know, a lot more easier people I could just slay in the thousands, that would be my kind of game. So so the thing about that is, and that would probably make it a more enjoyable game, but that would stop it from being canonical because it would take away any kind of influence it would have. It would just be good. And if something is just good, there's no point in coming back to it. You finish it and you go to the next game that just does the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I think Elden Ring is exactly what Elden Ring needs to be for it to be a game that is going to be remembered for quite some time to come. It'll be re- it'll replace it'll effectively replace Dark Souls as the game that people talk about. But oh, uh, I don't know Dark, that one. Dark Souls itself will continue to be a canon game for other reasons. No, um, I, I'd say it will. I, I say this is the Dark Souls of Dark Souls. Like but it, it's, when it, when people like, talk like, about even I admitted that. <laughs> when, we got that. We got that. When people talk about when people talk about kind of you know Souls like games in a general sense, it'll, they'll be referring to Elden Ring, is what I mean. I, I still think people will find value in Dark Souls and continue to talk about Dark Souls, but it'll be a more specific conversation about the qualities of Dark Souls beyond it just been a game i think people will continue to talk about the way that, that that particular game does level design and the influence it had over the genre uh it'll it'll transition into a more kind of this is like the original super mario brothers in setting the scene for what would come later conversation. elden ring is like mario 64 or like mario well, yeah yeah i mean elden ring is more like this is the the game that people talk about as the now that you should play i, I think if you Going forward, if you're going to recommend a Souls-like game to somebody, you're going to say, "Oh, play Elden Ring" as the first point. Oh, people aren't going, people aren't going to say play Dark Souls as the first point. Call. I mean, Elden wow, Ring—that's that's a big claim. No, I'd, I'd... See, I'd say that that's because as the games are coming out, they're actually slowly getting better, and eventually we're going to get to the point. I reckon in the Souls-like genre, I reckon at some point an indie's going to look at all that and they're going to be like, we can do this better and they're going to release something which is actually fun and actually entertaining but still be hard, still be gritty and it's going to be the pinnacle of that genre. 
I don't think we're at that yet. I think we're at a good tipping point in terms of people being influenced by Elder Ring, but I don't think in terms of what the genre could do, I think it's it's like baby steps still. Like it, it, it's going to balloon, like Metroidvanias and stuff like that. Like it's so, going to be completely different to what it is. The no. weird thing about that is that the best game, the pinnacle of the genre, isn't canonical because it keeps it keeps just getting better. I would say the vast majority of Metroidvanias coming out today are better than Super Metroid, but Super Metroid is the canonical game. And a lot of roguelikes coming out are more fun, more enjoyable than Rogue, but we call them roguelikes. You know, it, it, it's, it's the game that has the historical footnote, which isn't even necessarily good, but it needs to be there so we can keep talking about it. And that's what ends up getting remembered 30 years down the line. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's, definitely. It's, like, it's Dread, the, it... for example, is the highest selling Metroid 2D game, isn't it, currently? And no one's talking about Dread anymore. Dread's dropped off the face. Wow. Poor well, guys who made Dread. Yeah, yeah. Dread, Dread's not going. <laughs> Dread is certainly not going to be a canon game, even though people enjoyed it plenty. And it, this isn't a comment on the quality of the game. They can be a lot of fun without actually being canon games. Like you say, Harvard, the. The, the canon games aren't necessarily the best ones. And that applies to all art forms. I mean, who actually enjoys watching Citizen Kane? Virtually no one. Uh, oh, it's I did. Not, it was a great film. I really it's, enjoyed it. It's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's my pretension point for this podcast. It's, it's not that entertaining. It's it's an amazing film and everybody should watch it. But it isn't what I would suggest is, is an entertaining film to watch. And for the same reason, I don't necessarily enjoy Elden Ring as much as some other ones. I'm a Neo fan uh, for, for various reasons, but uh, the original Neo is my favorite of the, the Soul series. I certainly don't think Neo is the one that's going to be remembered as the canon in that particular genre for various reasons. Um, I'm a big fan of Warriors games. I don't think any of those games are canon games by any means. So yeah, it, it isn't necessarily about there being the best quality game. Uh, or even the one you would necessarily recommend to people first out. Uh, a good example of that would be Fire Emblem. The absolute canon Fire Emblem game is uh, Blazing Sword, the original English one, the first English release. The GBA one. Yeah, the GBA one. That is the canon Fire Emblem because it's, uh, it does so many things in such a powerful and compelling way. And anybody that has played the original Fire Emblem would say that it's, you know, that is the important one not just because it was the first one in English, but because it just did so many things that are, are interesting from an artistic and creative standpoint. But if you're going to- It's like how Majora's Mask is the better Zelda game and yeah, Ocarina of Time is the canon game. <laughs> and well, if you're no, going to- if, you, if, you're going, if you're going to recommend these games to people, then you would recommend Ocarina of Time before Majora's Mask to a new person. Uh, I would recommend- I... Fire Emblem Three Houses over Blazing Sword to somebody who's new to Fire Emblem. Uh, this is because I mean, ultimately when you're recommending games to new people or whatever, you, you want them to, to have the best experience they can with that series and from there segue into the more artistic examples of it. And it's exactly the same to go back to, to Elden Ring. Elden Ring, for what everybody says, is the most accessible Souls-like that from software has produced for a lot of reasons. It's difficult, yes, but it's also designed in a way that makes it more accessible to more people. So you'd suggest that people play that one before they go into, you would hope, um, explore Dark Souls and Demon Souls and the various other ones that are out there. So yeah, um, where were we going with this? 
the the best game in the series is not necessarily sorry the the canon game in a series or the games that are in the game gaming canon are not necessarily the ones that you would recommend to people as a first point of call well, because that, again it's it's, it's, it's all about it's all about influence it's all about what does this game what what influences this game had on the conversation around video games how about that let's go name a genre what's canon okay um so i mean let's talk about jrpgs because they're a, they're a common topic for us um you got certainly a bunch of the final fantasy series and a bunch yeah, of dragon, dragon quests yeah a, a, a bunch final of the dragon quests tactics is the is the is the canonical tactics game so yeah, so i agree with place... you Trent, but only because you only because i'm willfully ignoring that you mean advanced <laughs> The PlayStation one, not the GBA one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the PlayStation one's the best one. I know you mean advanced, but I'm ignoring that fact. Advanced. No, is everyone ad talks. Advanced. I guess advanced perfected it. I guess yeah. Everyone talks about the other one. But oh, you actually mean the PlayStation one? Uh, I don't know, but no, the PlayStation one has a snowball scene, doesn't it? No, that no, advanced put the snowball. Advanced snowball. Yeah. PlayStation is uh, like War of the Roses. Yeah, see, advanced made it that's, easier that's, for me. Advanced made it more fun for me. But yes, but yes, Trent I'll concede defeat. <laughs> Trent, we're talking about canon games here. The only person on the planet that still talks about fun tactics advance is you. Um, it's a good game, though. I will admit, it's it is a great game. I, I do enjoy the game, but yeah, I'll, I'll concede like, like defeat. Harvard, the PlayStation game, <laughs> like like Harvard says, the the PlayStation one being War of the Roses and and quite smart and intelligent that one pe people still talk about within the context of the tactics genre so that that's the canon for tactics tactics yeah yeah and because um, uh, i had to concede blazing sword i i'm a big sacred stones fan but same same problem with me is i think i'm in love with the advanced and blazing sword is the tactics yeah i mean fire emblem is a yeah, tactics rpgs as well so you're right um blazing sword would be up there with Final Fantasy Tactics as kind of the canon for that particular subgenre, but really with JRPGs, you are looking at um, Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and I can't think of too many others that I would say. I mean, Final Chrono Fantasy, Trigger, maybe Final Fantasy Seven, um, yeah, Chrono Trigger, um, Dragon Quest, probably Dragon Quest, the original Dragon Quest, really, because the original Dragon Which Quest was. Which is the one that's set in stone so much about what people love about Dragon Quest. It was the cute yeah, slime. I, it was the cute slime. It was the the very simple, very very simple narrative. Um, the idea of just kind of moving from town to town, solving a couple of problems in that town, and moving on. So much of what Dragon Quest still is was set in stone in that original Dragon Quest, whereas Final Fantasy's kind of evolved uh, in, in fundamental yeah. ways over over the years. Like different Final Fantasies are canonical with different things. The narrative, maybe four or six. The the epic storyline, maybe like seven, ten or something. But even then, if you were recommending a JRPG, if someone was like, "I've never played a JRPG before," what would you recommend? You would not say Dragon Quest One. You would not say anything that we would consider canonical. You would give them something enjoyable. And then, if they're interested in the history of the genre or designing a game of this style, you have to go back and play the originals. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but again, you know, we've talked about this, that the canon game isn't necessarily the, 
the most successful it isn't necessarily the game that you would recommend to people first and foremost it's more yeah, yeah i agree i think it's it just has it, a different status as a game compared to others yeah it's it's more about um that is the game that you end up having the conversations about in the context of the the genre or whatever uh, among experts for for one of a better term that's that's where the, the the discussion about the entire genre happens when you're getting into a, a genre for the first time then you're not really looking to have that conversation. You just want to have a good time with it and enjoy it from there. So, uh, yes, you're right. You would not recommend pretty much any of the JRPGs that are on the list of canon JRPGs to somebody for the first time. If I was to recommend a JRPG to somebody, uh, my first JRPG, Jesus, what would I even recommend? Um, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Blue Reflection. No, definitely not. <laughs> I'd pick probably a Tales game because it's a bit of everything. No, no, they're way they're way too complex. Like they have a too complex. Need, yeah, you need a maths degree to work out the combat system. <laughs> you really a persona? just getting buttons. No, wait. you you need a you need a persona. Persona. yeah persona, persona five persona. is a good one. Yeah, Persona Five would be yeah. the one. Um, persona Five would be the the old perfect entry into the JRPG genre if we could, because it's not well, just about Persona Four would be the canonical game. Yes, definitely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't think Persona, I don't think Persona Five is anywhere near as as canon as Persona Four, and the reason for that is Persona Five is really just a retread of what Persona Four did uh, in in every more way. More popular, in every way, bigger, more colorful, more vibrant, better produced in a lot of ways. It's better balanced. The combat system is better, objectively so, than Persona Four. Um, on it. It's it, it's a bigger budget game and. Um, it, it looks much better. You're not looking at characters that are like three polygons, you know, in, in construction. You're not so, looking at enemies that just a gray blob on the floor. Yeah, yeah. But Doctor's so, got the hots for you. Mm. Yeah, so <laughs> definitely Persona 5 is the better game. Uh, but Persona 4 is the canon because Persona 4 is the one that's really set everything into motion. It was the one that's that's... It, without Persona 4, you don't have Persona 5. And that's kind of <laughs> as good an indication that a game's a canon game as, as you're going to get. Um, because Persona 4 took what Persona 3 did, but put it in a format that was that was, that was uh, kind of more influential. I don't think anybody would think yeah. Persona 3 is particularly influential. It's the kind of game that when you're really hardcore into the genre, then you go into Persona 3. Um, yeah, it didn't really hit the narrative uh, stride too. Well, oh yeah, definitely the narrative was good. Yeah, it it was that it was. He kind of hit all those notes. It had Persona Four was the the point where they realized that a game can be serious without being so kind of slit your wrist. Yeah, yeah. Um, As Persona Three was, they realized that they needed to have that balance between interesting characters. And apologies to anybody listening to the podcast that hears a squawking in the background. There's a yeah, it's an angry cockatoo you got there. Yeah, it's a very angry cockatoo. Uh, he comes for breakfast. Citizen Kane. Um, but anyway, ignore the cockatoo. What was I saying? If Persona 4 was that time where yeah, they realised the characters needed to have that levity to them to be enjoyable. They wanted to have those kinds of... Um, that, that blend of experiences that kind of mixed in actual youth culture uh, with with the drama and the, the more philosophical elements. Persona 3 was a much more in your head kind of game and in many ways it is superior to persona 4 but it didn't quite hit 
the the influence that P4 did. So yeah. But you can you can trace P4's influence. You can go to the years that after it came out and go, hey, they're making Akiba Akiba beats or whatever it's called. They're making like Falcom made the high school drama well, to- teenage yeah, Tokyo, Tokyo Xanadu is a good example of that. Um, yeah, Tokyo Xanadu, that's what I was thinking of. That's that's very much a uh, a clone of Persona 4, but even uh, Blue Reflection is another good example of that. Blue yeah, Reflection they, you is... would not have Blue Reflection if it wasn't for Persona 4, absolutely. Ex- exactly. So Persona 4 was really the one that established a lot, but as we've said, Persona 5 is the one that you would recommend to people to, as their intro into the genre is a little bit more of a palatable first step into JRPGs. Um, but yeah, that's that's the JRPG genre. Let's What else we got? Uh Sports, sport games. What sport, sport games, games we play? That's well, I mean, a hard sport, one because sport games it's just is about being the best. Yeah, I mean, sport games are a kind of different thing in that I don't think there is an actual canon for sports games. <laughs> um, sport games are one of those ones that genuinely they they track improvements over time, and everybody knows that uh, while one game might be a bit of a drop on what has come previous, ultimately. It is just such a technology-driven genre that um, it just gets better over time. So you wouldn't want to say that there's any particular sport game that's kind of the canon of sports games because it's always going to be superseded by something. And, and now that you mention more it, light-hearted ones like Wii Sports did like a huge thing. Well, with, you're like, right. You are right. Wii Sports entertainment, right. but you are right. Has it really influenced anything since? Like, no, I think. Wii Sports is absolutely clinical. I would turn on my Wii right now and play it because I want to. Like, that's something worth going back to. Not results, but just the original. No, the original Wii Sports is certainly worth studying still for all kinds of reasons uh, as, a, as a game design thing, as uh, as a business thing as well. It was the perfect game to kind of launch the, uh, the Wii one and explain to people how to play the Wii. It was a bit like the original Super Mario Brothers, that you had the tutorial just by playing. The same with uh, with Wii Sports. You learned how to play the Wii by playing Wii Sports, and that was a that was a a thing that made the game a piece of canon. That I think anybody that wants to launch a console in the future should look at Wii Sports. And in fact, I would even say that uh, kind of Astro's Playbot or whatever that thing was that launched with the PlayStation Yeah, Astro's Five, Playroom, absolutely. That definitely that took to inspiration from Wii because it is a very entertaining game. Um, very entertaining game, but the way it uses the control, the way it explains the features of the PlayStation through play, definitely I would trace back to, to Wii Sports as being the kind of the underlying influence on that. So oh yeah, Astro Bot is great. And the VR game is essentially what doing so much more. It's, it's like what Super Mario 64 did for 3D for VR. Like the VR game oh, is amazing if anyone has played that. Because Super Mario 64 absolutely had that role of teaching people how 3D games worked. Yeah, Super Mario 64 is um, that that is the reason that that game is canon as well. For and no other reason. And I would suggest that that's a reason that when people play <laughs> Super when people play Super Mario 64 now they they're a little bit disappointed by it. And the reason that I wouldn't necessarily recommend Super Mario 64 to people for their first 3D platformer because Nobody's the on. reason. The reason it is canon is because it explained 3D play in platformers in a way that hadn't been articulated before. So yeah, it's it was that time and place thing that doesn't really replicate across now. 
you play Super Mario 64 now and the qualities that made it great on the N64, the way that it used the controller and the, the way that it, you, you would interact with it is not there anymore. It's like how the best version. Super Mario 64 is the DS version. The best Ocarina of Time is the 3DS, the 3DS version. version. The best, yeah. best Majora's Mask is the 3DS version, though some people are like, oh, you can't swim or some weird complaint. But like the best ones have been the remakes. Well, they're a better way to play it. But, but they're not they're not the canon version of these. They don't games. become definitive, which annoys me infinitely. It it really pisses me off that the 3D Ocarina of Time will be lost forever and we will constantly get the N64 version everywhere. It annoys me, but that is how it works, I think. I would yeah, it it, it it's because that original one is is the is the canon that is <laughs> That is the one that has the the cultural resonance, and that is why I imagine that they continue to to pull those ones out. So I think um, like the worth of having it there for the historical value trumps actually making it a better game. That's maybe how I put it. Yeah, and I agree with that. I would rather I would rather have the inferior version if the inferior version is the one that is artistically that people valuable. experience at the time, maybe, so you can go back and see what what it was like yeah it's okay to admit as boomers that our old games are good <laughs> the new games are better <laughs> i mean yeah they're not and that's that's fine that's fine <laughs> well it's not about being good or not it's really just about um it, it's really about it's about meaning you know it's yeah like it, if you're it, interested it's in design or you're interested in crafts or if you're interested in just anything more than mindless entertainment as you play, then this is where you go. Well, I mean, if you just want good, right? If, if you just want good, if the only thing you care about is having a good game to play, then you may as well play Godfall because Godfall is a perfectly competently made game. It is boring as anything. And it is a, it is, it is something that rightfully everybody's forgotten about about two days after it got released, but it is a perfectly fine made game. Um, yeah. There, there is a point, I mean, we, we've got to get to a point with this industry where we stop expecting it just to be a good game like that is some kind of, that that is what is important for video games. It's not. It really is, what is the game saying? What is the game doing? And if, and how is it different and interesting? It's not about just being good quality. It's about a whole bunch of other factors that we don't really do a good job of taking into account in the video game industry still because so much of what we do spins around, oh, is this good or not? And uh, how many copies? It needs to be at least eight to 10 out of 10. It needs to be, you know, a high tier, good button mashing game. It's not meant to be thinky because thinky makes, you know, you think. <laughs> and that's why, that's the thing. That's, like, why the like, that's why the likes of Ubisoft keeps churning out these games that are, they're objectively perfectly fine made games. The Assassin's Creed games are just fine. The Fallout, the Fallout, the uh, the Far Cry games are just fine. But at some point, this industry has to move past like caring about fine. It has to. It has to want a bit more than that. Uh, Horizon's a great example of that. The who's going to remember Horizon Forbidden West is not going to be a canon game. Uh, yeah, it's an aggressively fine game. In fact, in fact, I would say that 
Horizon Forbidden West got forgotten, the second Elden Ring released one week later on. And the reason is Forbidden West is fine. It is just a perfectly fine game. There's nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't do anything either. It doesn't say anything. It's just aggressively made to sell. And that, for me, is the difference between what is going to be canon games in the future and games that are forgotten very quickly. So when you're, when you're trying to figure out which games are going to be remembered a long time down the track, and I do this as I do my reviews and stuff, when I'm actually writing about games and I'm trying to think, what is the difference between a game that's going to be remembered forever and a game that's kind of just for the now? It is the games that are actually trying to do something different that are going to be remembered forever. They might not always be successful, but... Um, yeah, it's the ones to try. I realize too, as, as people who talk about games on this podcast, or as people who write about games, or as people who even just care about games as a medium, we actually have a lot of influence in deciding what is the canon, because we get to talk about a game as if it's something that other people should know about. So we create that conversation. And I will die on the hill that Mafia, the entire series, should be canonical. But I'm going to try as hard as I can to make it happen. And until I can convince other people that it's worth going back to play, then that's that's my personal journey to make something canon, you know? You just need to be a famous YouTuber and play a game and then have it skyrocket in value and then just sell all your Mafia games. It's it's more than that, though. It's It's being able to convince people that this game is val- aesthetically valuable to the point that they should give up playing whatever is fun in order to go experience something that is more than that. I think that's really difficult to do because video games are an entertainment medium. So why wouldn't you just play what is the most value for money and eats up your time the best? But if you can convince someone, hey, it's actually really worthwhile to experience the narrative of this or to experience the aesthetic vision of this, then you do something fundamentally more than just waste their time for a couple of hours. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the thing that uh, when we talk about canon games, it's more an artistic term as opposed to a a commercial or entertainment thing. It's the same reason that when we talk about canon films, people don't talk about Marvel. Um, or when we're talking about you know, the canon in literature, we're not talking about Hunger Games and whatever other youth fiction is, is popular because those are the things that sell and people are entertained by them. Canon is more to do with the artistic side of things. These are the things that are important. I think the canon Marvel that would take these things. Iron Man. If there had to be a canon Marvel, I think it's the original Iron Man, which set it all off. No, I was yeah. talking about Hulk, but that, but that's Iron that's Man. kind of that's kind of not the point. It's more the canon of the actual art form is has to do with it is more an artistic conversation than it is a a popular entertainment decision uh, conversation. So. Yeah, all of, all of the above is preferenced by, once again, these things aren't necessarily the best-selling games, nor are they the most you know, popular as such. But they are the ones that uh, will be talked about by people who take this medium seriously in the future. It's like anyway, how on, the new Batman will be the canon, canon Batman, and yeah, even though fans not, hate it, even though it's what they wanted. It, <laughs> it, it's not, it's not going to be. None of Superhero films are, are never going to be canon. <laughs> anyway, uh, on that note... Um, we need to wrap this podcast up. So thank you very much for joining us, Trent and Harvard. Hope that was interesting. Do let us know your thoughts in, in the comments, wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. Uh, other than that, we've got nothing else to say right now. Have a good month and play play lots of games. Maybe catch up on the old backlog since uh, April is a little bit quieter in terms of the game releases. You've probably got a lot of games that have yet added to that backlog since the start of the year. So clear them off. Other than that, do check out the new digitallydownloaded.net, the new bright, fresh look. We're very pretty now. 
uh, we're the handsomest games website out there. And um, yeah, on that note, we'll head off. See you next month.